Hello, everybody. My name is Katherine Barron. I'm a longtime education reporter, and I'm excited to be hosting The Score, a podcast about academic integrity and cheating. Over six episodes of The Score, we'll be looking at the landscape of cheating in school and taking a closer look at some of the issues at play in this multifaceted issue challenging academia today. How big a problem is it? Who cheats? What are schools and colleges doing to address the problem? What's the impact of cheating on society and on our lives? And perhaps the biggest question, why do people cheat? We'll ask the experts to provide insights into what's happening in our classrooms. We'll talk with a journalist who writes about academic integrity. We'll talk with leading scholars and educators who have published research and articles about cheating. And we'll hear from students themselves about why they think cheating is so pervasive. We'll also ask our guests to weigh in on regulatory and legislative action and other policies that they think may work to curb cheating. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at podcastthescore, one word, or stop by our website to download show notes and see our lineup of guests and release dates. We're at podcastthescore.com. Again, that's podcastthescore.com. On this episode of The Score, we're speaking with Dr. Tricia Bertram Gallant about what schools, colleges, and universities are doing and can do to reduce cheating. It may not be what you think. Dr. Bertram Gallant is Director of Academic Integrity at UC San Diego and Board Emeritus of the International Center for Academic Integrity. She's co-editor of the upcoming Jossie Bass book, Cheating Academic Integrity, Lessons from 30 Years of Research, which is due out in March 2022, and co-editor of an upcoming special issue of the Journal of College and Character, which is due to be published in February 2022. Welcome to The Score. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with asking you, how has the scope and type of cheating changed with remote learning due to COVID-19? Difficult question to answer because COVID-19 is still ongoing and some schools are still in emergency remote teaching, although a lot of us have come back or we're trying to do hybrid. We don't have a lot of data, right, from that period of time. But anecdotally, it seems that the contract cheating did increase during this time. And contract cheating, we... Uh, is the word, the phrase we use to define when students outsource their academic work to others. And so there are websites that exist where students can post their exam question or their assignment question or their paper assignment, and somebody else will do the work for them. So that definitely increased during the pandemic, both because there were more opportunities to do so in terms of all of my assessments were now remote, Um, But also, I think because of the stress and pressure of the pandemic led students to take more risks and do more things that they wouldn't have done in, quote unquote, normal times. Now, why would they do that? Have they changed the way they view learning and education because it's so impersonal when it's online? Yeah. So again, we're not sure in terms of the research. We do know from before the pandemic, the research on academic integrity and online learning environments versus in-person learning environments didn't show a lot of differences. But keep in mind that students before the pandemic chose online learning. They got to decide if they wanted to go to the University of Maryland Global Campus versus the University of Maryland College Park. None of our students had that choice during the pandemic. And so um, 
their views of learning um, and education and interaction likely changed. We, we do know that from the research that establishing connection and community in the online environment is more challenging than in the in-person environment. And so when people feel disconnected from others, when they feel like more anonymous or their actions don't matter or don't impact others, that can lead to all sorts of behaviors, in, including cheating. You've written about different factors behind cheating and then a common motivational thread that runs throughout all of them. I'm wondering if you could give us sort of a short primer on what that is and where stress might fit into that. How big a factor is that? A lot of the writing I do is summarizing and applying, helping people apply the research that other folks have done. Uh, folks like Eric Anderman at uh, The Ohio State University, who has done a lot of research on the motivations, the psychology behind cheating, as has Dr. David Rettinger at University of Mary Washington and others. What they have found consistently is that my motivations may not be to cheat per se, but if my motivations are extrinsic, if I'm focused mostly on getting that grade, getting that course passed, getting that diploma or degree, I am more likely to shortchange learning, to take shortcuts that is cheat than if I'm intrinsically motivated to learn, right? To master the material. However, schools and colleges and universities can feed into that. So not only does the student come to us perhaps with an intrinsic or extrinsic motivation, but our classrooms can have an intrinsic or extrinsic orientation. So if you think about the education system, it's very extrinsically motivated. Test scores, grades, getting into college. We don't hear a lot of talk about actual learning <laughs> and um, our students developing the skills and knowledge that we need for the 21st century. Uh, think about an example you maybe you've experienced yourself in a class where a, a faculty member said the instructions for the class or the motivation for the class was how to earn an A in this course. That's very different than saying how to learn the material or how to master or how to develop your knowledge, how to leave here smarter than you than you were when you entered. And so that motivational thread permeates both from the individual perspective, but also from the way in which we set up our, our education system and our classrooms. Well, as a former student and a college teacher, lecturer occasionally, it's always one of the very first questions asked is, what do I need to do to earn an A in this class? Yes. And so what, what is that response that you can give to start orienting the student to learning and away from the grade? So for example, I could just respond and say, you need to write your papers on time. You need to turn them in on time. You need to do all the readings. Those are very transactional things, right? Um, this is what I, I, I often joke that I, when I say we, uh, our students feel like assignment factories, they take in an input and they spit something out and they take an input in and they spit it out. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. So what if I responded to say, well, let's look at the learning objectives for the class. The grades are meant to measure the learning that you've achieved. So let's look at the learning objectives. What do you think you need to do in order to reach those learning objectives? What kind of um, study strategies do you need? What kind of tutoring help from me or, or the TA do you need? So it's just a very different answer, even though the question is the same. 
What's the difference between students who are extrinsically motivated and intrinsically motivated? That must start before they even get into school or at least into college. So how do you change that? Constant reframing, right? Yes, it starts before they get into college for sure. Again, because our educational system is set up to be transactional and extrinsically motivated. And frankly, you know, it's probably just natural kind of human inclination. Although when you think about when you were a kindergartner or maybe you were, you know, some even as a toddler, if you could remember back, you're really curious about how things worked how you could figure something out, how you could make something do what you wanted it to do. It wasn't about getting the grade (laughs) because there was no grade to be attached to it. So unfortunately, a lot of times our school system, and this is globally speaking, kind of focus, you know, it focuses on that external stuff. And and we forget to remind students it's about the internal. So I had a student who um, had been reported for plagiarizing and, and she wanted to talk to me about this. And she said, can I tell you what happened that led me here? And I said, sure. And she said, well, so I I wrote my paper and then I sent it home to my mom like I always do. And when my mom sent it back, it was really different. And I said to my mom, mom, you didn't go on the internet for any of this stuff, did you? Because my mom loves to go on the internet. And she said, no, but Turnitin said my paper was 40% plagiarized. And so by this time she had a tear coming down her cheek and I said, okay, so what's the lesson learned? And she said, check the work my mom does. And she wasn't being sassy with me. She wasn't trying to be funny. It turns out the more I talked to her, it turns out all her life, her mother required her to give her her assignments and papers so she could check them and fix them, make them better before she submitted them. So I said to her, actually, that's not the lesson learned. We don't care if your mother can write, and clearly she cannot because she plagiarized. We care can you write? Are you learning? Are you able to communicate what you're learning to others? Have you grown and expanded your knowledge from the beginning of the course to the end of the course? I said, that's what we care about. The grade, the paper is just supposed to reflect that. And I swear, I always say, I feel like I could see the light bulb go off over her head. It had just been so long since someone talked to her about her that matters and her learning that she got lost. She got lost. This was not someone who was a cheater tending to cheat that we should punish and and get rid of. This is just a student who got lost along the way, in part due to the way in which we've set up the system in our classes. Well, So how do students come to the Academic Integrity Office? What do you do? And, and how do you faculty members come to you? Well, our Academic Integrity Office is quite unique in America. There's a few uh, universities in America that have either an honor system that's student-run or an Academic Integrity Office that tends to be staff-run. Staff and um, it's odd that that it's unique, right? That we you would think academic integrity is so critical to the essential teaching and learning mission that every university would have an office that focuses on educating um, about academic integrity, um, and it's common maybe in some other countries like Australia, but but not here. And so my office, our mission is to promote and support a culture of integrity in order to reinforce quality teaching and learning. So we work a lot to educate students to prevent, hopefully, cheating from occurring. We also work a lot with faculty to help them redesign their courses, their assessments, to figure out how to communicate about academic integrity, but also how to respond to integrity violations when they occur. And 
we do a lot of after education with students. So after there's a, been a, a violation, we do what I say, we leverage the che cheating moment for a teachable moment. And so we work a lot with students after the fact to, to help them learn from their experience. What is the debate that you hear regarding what should happen, what should be the consequences of cheating? For instance, that student that you, you mentioned, she really didn't know any different. This was how she was raised. When I was in college, we were taking an intro to logic class, and the night before the final exam, some students went into the professor's office. They stole the paper copy of the exam. None of us, the rest of us, didn't know about that until the next day when we walked in to take the exam. The professor was livid. He had found out what happened, spent the night rewriting the exam to make it pretty much as hard as he possibly could. Mm -hmm. And so we all paid the penalty for it. I actually don't know what happened to those students who stole the exam, mm. or if he even knew who took it, but just knew that it had been taken. Mm -hmm. And I, so what is the, the line there? What is, is there some kind of a scale that we have to look at depending on what happened? So the default position, I think for most folks is punitive response, punishing people. The harsher the consequences, the, you know, students won't cheat if they just know that the consequences are going to be really harsh. And there's actually no research to back that up. Why students cheat is so complex, and there's such an interplay of factors that saying that this one thing will stop students from cheating just doesn't ring true, right? It's, it, it, it's not resonant. Also, it doesn't jive with our university or school or college mission, right, which is to help students grow and learn and develop. So um, the debate is, what should our responses to cheating look like? Some, like myself and a co-author, Jason Stevens, and I have argued in, in print is that we should not be focused on punitive responses, but on developmental and educational responses, in particular for a first violation, right, which the majority, the majority are first violations. But there's, it's challenging to sometimes convince people of that. Now, the story that you just told is a very serious violation. There's probably a little bit of breaking and entering there, right? There's, there's theft and there's just plain cheating. The cheating today with everything being digital is much more insidious and much more kind of commonplace. And when you think also, things have changed a lot, at least since I was an undergrad, right? We we have more questions about who owns music and who gets to copy music and who gets to sell music. The way in which we view knowledge and information is getting more and more kind of complicated with the internet and with advances in technology. And so there's a lot more confusion from students about, you know, where is that line between, between cheating and integrity? And they sometimes make the bad ethical decision of where that line is and what that line is. I guess that does surprise me a little bit because it, it seems like we know what the line is, but maybe we make different types of excuses based on how easy it is or what the opportunities are to cheat. Sure. We've got lots of research that shows that the human brain is very good at rationalizing, justifying, and neutralizing 
our behaviors so that we can feel good about ourselves, right? So when I speed, I tell myself it's because I'm in a hurry, everybody else is doing it, I'm not hurting anybody, it's safer to go with the flow of traffic than to go the speed limit. So we're all very, very good at doing that on a daily basis. And students are human beings just like us, so they're also very good at doing those things. But there's also real ethical dilemmas that all of us face on a, on a daily basis. And we were not necessarily taught, we were taught maybe be a good girl, don't be a bad girl, do right, not wrong. But we weren't taught about how to solve the dilemma of when two rights are in conflict. So for example, a student who is asked by their best friend, whose mother is maybe going through cancer treatments, says, can I please have your assignments? You took this class last year. Can I please have your assignments? That would really help me out. You know I'm going through a difficult time. If you just gave me your assignments, that would really, that would really help me out. Now this, this person is stuck in a position of helping their friend or not, right? That's, that's the predicament they see themselves in. I either give my assignments to my friend because I love her and I want to help her, or I don't. But we haven't done a good job of teaching ethical decision-making skills to students so that she knows, well, wait, I can help my friend and not give her my assignments, right? But that is a more complex, reasoned way of thinking that we haven't necessarily educated our students on how to do or ourselves. Most people haven't been taught how to think through these things. Is that something that the Academic Integrity Office does at UC San Diego? We do. We spend a lot of our time, particularly after the first violation, uh, like I said, leveraging that as a teachable moment, grounding our what we do in Kolb's experiential learning theories that we learn from our experiences if there are structured opportunities presented to us to help us do so. And so we try and take that moment and then extrapolate from that to help students understand that you had an ethical decision to make. It might have been an ethical decision between right and wrong, or it might have been an ethical decision between two rights. But either way, let's talk about ways you can work through that in the, in the future. Seems like it should start so much earlier. It should, but we don't have control over that, right? And so we can only do what, what we're able to do. And this is the same advice I give faculty who say, well, why should I have to talk about what is or isn't cheating or academic integrity? And shouldn't the students already know this? Sure. But your class is a very specific subculture of this larger ecosystem. And as the person in charge of that you know, uh, subculture, you have an obligation to make sure that there's shared expectations around what is cheating and what isn't cheating in your class. And so I always say it seems like a lack of communication is the cause of a lot of problems in our world, and that applies to cheating as well. That if we know from research that amongst student bodies, there's some agreement about what is and isn't cheating, and the faculty might have a total different viewpoint of that. And so if we know that you're not on the same page, then of course you have to talk about it. So there's a difference between should it happen sooner? Yes. And what can I do about it regardless? When do the faculty come to you? And do a lot of them come to you? Or is it not as, I don't know, do they not think that students are cheating in their classes? Or 
is it something they feel that they really can't deal with because it's so big or it's so onerous? Yes, and yes. So um, I've worked with faculty all over the world. I'm I'm working with some faculty at another institution on uh, this week, actually. And I was amazed by how similar, whether I was in U.S., Canada, Mexico, Australia, Egypt, Singapore, there's two things that are true. One, every single faculty member is different from the other faculty member, right? They're not a monolith. And two, we share a lot of the same questions and problems and concerns, despite geographic boundaries. And so faculty come to academic integrity at all different points. Some come as soon as they start teaching because they want to know, like, how do I best design my class and my assessments to enhance learning and, and integrity and minimize cheating? And others don't come until they've had their first case of cheating that they have to deal with. So you know, some are in denial that cheating's a problem, and and some think cheating's happening way more often than it is, right? So it's all over the place. It's very variable. We've spoken a lot about cheating in the United States, and it seems like there might be a belief that it's more common here mm. because of all the pressure on students put on by their families, by getting into schools, by the stresses that they seem to be under. Is that the case, or is it as widespread in many other countries as it is here? Cheating knows no geographic boundaries, so it actually is pretty similar worldwide. You might get a study here or there that shows higher or lower rates um, in one country over another, but generally speaking, the rates are pretty consistent, and I'm talking self-reported rates of cheating. So these are students telling us how much they're cheating. So some social desirability bias in there, which means that the numbers are probably higher, right, than what they're telling us. And it's as low as 10% of students admitting that they cheat at least once a year to as many as, you know, in the 40, 40% or even some studies have shown in the 70 and 80% <laughs> range are admitting to it. So there doesn't seem to be a difference by country. And I would say that if you talk to anybody like me in different countries, they would say, our students are stressed, our students are pressured, because it's a global education system at this point. And so all of the, the, the stressors that our domestic students might feel, whether it's family pressures or, or climb the ladder, you know, the American dream pressures, exist in other countries. And frankly, so many of our faculty and students, at least in the, in the, in the big um, English-speaking countries like Australia, UK, Canada, and, and the US are internationally, right? So we don't, we don't have geographic boundaries around our community members. And so that also makes us a, a little bit more similar than different. Why don't more colleges have the academic integrity offices like UC San Diego? You mentioned that, it's, that you're unique pretty much. Yeah, we're not quite unique. There's other ones like us. Um, we are considered a very well-established office and, and one that other <laughs> schools would like to emulate if they could. You know, again, it depends. Some don't have the resources, right? But as an organizational leadership theorist, we know that resources can be found for what we find to be important. And people judge what is important in a particular culture based on what the leaders are um, attending to, what they're spending money on, what they're saying. In the recent years, we've seen this country in particular, the United States, 
trying to tackle racism, for example, in ways that haven't been tackled in the past. And in particular, in higher education institutions, a lot of higher education institutions have done things like created, if not an office for diversity, equity, inclusion, at least a person right, who, who can keep the, the university focused on the goal. There's requirements in curriculum. There's requirements in tenure and promotion for faculty that they attend to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's because the universities decided this is very, very important. And so universities can decide the same thing about academic integrity, that this is a critical piece of our teaching and learning mission. Um, we must spend money on it. We must have symbols that we care about academic integrity. Uh, we were known, myself and some others are known for saying that if we can, if we don't do this, if we don't attend to academic integrity in a very proactive, intentional way, we have the risk of all of us turning into essentially diploma mills, where we are not truly, honestly, and fairly assessing and certifying knowledge and abilities um, because cheating is potentially out of control. That sounds very hyperbolic and very, you know, alarmist. And I'm not talking tomorrow or next week or next month. But there's, there's signs that cheating is becoming institutionalized in the periphery of higher education by all these companies that exist to facilitate cheating. If we don't act in a way that counters those highly effective actors, then... It can't be good. Is this something that's a big concern and an issue for the International Center for Academic Integrity? Right now, it is a very important issue. Every year, we do an International Day of Action Against Contract Cheating in October, the third Wednesday in October. And that is to encourage universities and staff and faculty and students to speak out and uh, up and out against contract cheating and to learn more about it so that we can counter it. What can we do and what can the International Center for Academic Integrity do when there are these, as you mentioned, contract cheating agencies that are actually traded on the stock exchange? I mean, they're just, just embedded in the fabric of our economy right now. Anytime that there's big actors like that on one side, you need big actors on the other side. And the International Center for Academic Integrity, although is approaching 30 years old in 2022, is small and not well supported, frankly. Every college university should be a member of ICAI to support its mission of cultivating academic integrity cultures around the world. Without that support, we just don't have the resources to to counter those other organizations directly. And so we're left with working of trying to help universities and colleges and faculty in particular, you know, rethink, one, we have to counter their narrative as much as we can. So is there ways that we can, again, it's insidious because students get text messages, they get emails, they get um Discord server and WeChat messages from these companies, how do we counter that? How do we say, no, don't do it? It was easy if there was a flyer on campus, right? Back in the day, again, if there was a flyer on campus saying, hey, post your questions to, to give you your question, ask and we'll answer it, I could slap a sticker on there saying, don't be a cheater, right? I could, I could do direct messaging. It's a lot more difficult now. So we do need support. We need a national and international uh, backing behind this, like, for example, in Australia, where the Quality Assurance Agency, TESCA, 
pushed and and they they now have a law against contract cheating and in fact just one shutting down a company from advertising cheating services in Australia. So that's the the route that we have to take in addition to thinking about how can we teach differently, how can we assess differently, given that it is the 21st century and the internet and all uh, exists and all of these other technological advances are going to keep coming. We have to keep evolving as an educational institution and as, and as a curricula to teach and assess differently than we did 30 years ago. Is integrity in some way a part of accreditation for colleges and universities? Not in the United States. So it is in Australia. We do not have a national, we do not have quality assurance in the United States, and we do not have a national approach. It's regional. And there are not pressures from the accrediting agencies for institutions to attend to academic integrity. What can faculty do? How can they change the way they teach and assess in order to help reduce cheating? by actually changing classrooms into a place of learning rather than a place of getting you know good grades, essentially. It's challenging because it depends on a variety of factors. Do you have a classroom of 25 students or of 600 students? And so, you know, some good principles that uh, I teach faculty or I share with faculty to allow them to pick and choose what works for their particular circumstance. Discipline also makes a difference, right? Is it a writing class? Is, is it a science lab? You know, all of these things, all of these variables make a difference. So some key principles are improving that mastery orientation, which they can do by more active learning rather than students coming to sit and listen to a lecture. That is very 20th century, right? I don't need to physically, and I think we've all learned this over the last 20 months, I don't physically need to go somewhere to sit and listen to someone talk. I can do that from my house. So if I'm going to get out of my house and go to be with you, you know, active learning is really good. And what does that mean? It can mean a flipped classroom where I do watch the lectures pre-recorded and I do the readings and I come to class and it's all about problem solving, problem-based learning or team-based learning where we're engaging in solving problems and applying the application of the material that I learned individually. And there's all sorts of good pedagogies around that. It could just mean scaffolding assignments, right? So that there's not just one big research paper, but there's a scaffolded approach to getting there. It could mean that there's lots of multiple small stakes formative assessments that don't have grades attached to them, again, that focus on my learning. Some faculty here at UC San Diego got an NSF grant during the pandemic to look at oral assessments, um, and particularly how to scale up this idea of oral assessments for larger classes. And what they found was, and it wasn't an oral assessment in place of a written exam, it was a follow-up to the written exam, where you could you know, get a student to orally explain one of their answers. What does that do? It, it helped with students' perceptions of academic integrity. They felt like academic integrity was more common than cheating, and therefore they weren't justifying their own cheating by saying everybody's doing it. It forced students to articulate 
not just in writing what their knowledge is, but orally, which is great for <laughs> the student as a future employee and citizen that they can actually speak to their knowledge. And it created a sense of connection between the assessors and the assessees that was felt more real because it was personal. You know, they didn't do it in person. It was over Zoom, but still it was face-to-face. And so they've had some great successes with that. And I, I look forward to seeing what they end up publishing as a result of, of that experiment. Well, it is pretty difficult to cheat on an oral exam, right? <laughs> that, that's, although when you have so many students, though, that's, it's not feasible. Well, maybe. That's what they're doing is scaling up and how do you train TAs to, to do these oral assessments that are only 15 to 20 minutes long, again, because they're a follow-up to a written assessment. We also have to keep in mind that there's still ways to cheat on that, right? So you can buy pretty good James Bond type equipment from Amazon. So I could have something in my ear, right, where someone's feeding me the answer. So it's still possible. There's no bulletproof solution to stopping cheating, but it turns it more into what you were talking about with your peers stealing an exam from an office. It turns it more into a kind of an intentional, deliberate, I really want to cheat versus a misunderstanding or a a rash, bad decision under stress and pressure. We've discussed this on a couple of other episodes in terms of the scope of cheating today. But what I'm wondering is, how new is cheating? Is this something that has evolved as higher education has become the North Star for getting jobs and getting ahead in life? I love that question. So my very first book, um, Academic Integrity in the 21st Century, a teaching and learning imperative, also by Josie Bass, looked into the history of cheating and academic integrity in the U.S. in particular. And there's some great quotes in there from people that you would think we're talking today, but they're from the 1800s. Oh, the students today, they have no moral compass and they just want to cheat. And there's a great study by Hart Shorn and May in 1923 that looked at cheating amongst really young kids. And cheating is, and my friend Jason Stevens says that cheating is normal and natural. He did a whole piece where he looked at biologically species cheat as evolutionary, as a survival mechanism. So when you think about how many times you've lied in your life, that can give you some comparison about how easy it is to be dishonest, right? How easy it is when you think that your life depends on it or something really big depends on it. So cheating has always existed. Contract cheating has always existed. This is not new that people are getting other people to do their stuff for them. It's just the internet and the business, right? The the industry around it is new. It used to have to know somebody. It used to be more of like a dark alley where you'd arrange to meet someone and now you just get advertisements to do it. So it's easier Think about how hard it was for you to plagiarize back in the day, right? We would have literally had to like read the book and type it. Right now, you can just copy and paste. But we don't have any proof that students, individual people, are cheating more or less than before. So so this could have been going on in like the Olive Grove with Socrates. Somebody sort of snuck out for a second and looked at this stone of the person (laughs) carving something next to them. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) But again, maybe less likely because Socrates probably only had, what, 15 people there. He knew them all. He would be questioning them in the moment. Maybe they weren't allowed to put up their hands and go for a bathroom break right after getting asked a question. But yes, it, it... the human humans haven't changed that much. What one final question then? You've discussed quite a few 
not necessarily controversial, but definitely unique ways of looking at how to address cheating instead of just being punitive about it. And I'm wondering what can be done from a policy regulatory perspective to help facilitate that. You mentioned some things happening in Australia right now. Is, is there something that, say, in the United States we could start to do? Yeah. So 17 states do have education codes that prohibit essentially contract cheating. Those codes have to be enforced by somebody, right? Usually an attorney general for the state. Those 17 states could just actually start in, you know, applying the laws as they are written. But really, I think we need a quality assurance and or accreditation agencies to say academic integrity is critical. You must be attending to it to be an accredited institution. And what does that attending to it look like? That has got to be done. There should be a federal law. Look at the way the FBI went after the college admission scandal, right? They used mail fraud to go after people who were essentially contract cheating, right? Those those people were contract cheating for their kids to say, you know, give fake fake personal statements or fake dossiers or or whatever. And they used federal law to to crack down on that. That's not happening. They're they're allowing the contract cheating industry to to grow up around us and as you said be publicly traded and you know, gain legitimacy. And so we've got to start acting in the ways that the UK and Australia and Ireland are and New Zealand, which says this is not acceptable. This is undermining a fundamental enterprise of our 21st century, which is education. And we are going to do something about it. We are going to prohibit it. And we are going to go after those who continue to do it regardless. Dr. Tricia Bertram Glant is Director of Academic Integrity at UC San Diego and Board Emeritus of the International Center for Academic Integrity. I'm Katherine Barron. You've been listening to The Score. The Score is produced by the Academic Integrity and Research Group at Pando Public Relations. It is underwritten by Measure Learning and technical support is provided by This Is Distorted. To ask questions, to download show notes, or to learn more about The Score, visit our website at podcastthescore.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at podcastthescore, or find us on all the podcast platforms as The Score.